So as you can see, uh, first reading is Joshua uh, 24, 1 to 15, which is on page 168. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he cursed you again and again. Sorry, so he blessed you again and again and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities which you did not build. And do you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive, olive groves that you did not plant? Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then our second uh, New Testament reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, from verse 12 through to chapter 3, verse 6, which is on page 817. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death the other the fragrance of life and who is equal to such a task 
Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like like men sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You know that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Uh, Good evening, everyone. Wow, it's a wireless microphone. It's working. Let's praise God for that, and let's just bow our heads in prayer before God's word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the confidence that we have uh, in you as being a God who is just so awesome. Uh, As we've reflected tonight, you are just so much beyond uh, our world, so much better than the things that we see in our world, so much greater than the possibilities we can even imagine. And as we come now to uh, consider your word, to listen to it and let it speak into our lives, uh, we pray that you would give us confidence in it. Uh, Please, Lord, use, uh, use this word today to speak into our hearts and give us the confidence that we can have in Christ. Amen. Well, please keep your Bibles open. uh, And thanks for reading that out, Mark. Um, We're going to be doing a little bit of flipping around that section. Um, uh, I've got a question for you to to begin with, uh, and I don't mean to alarm you by asking this question, but here's the question. Are you a confident Christian? And I say I don't want to alarm you by it because... I just noticed a friend in the background over there and he's taking me by surprise. How you going, mate? I'm sorry about that. I'll I'll start again. (laughs) Ah, dear. Are you a confident Christian? There is a... uh, As I ask that question, I anticipate there'd be a range of responses. Um, There'd be a number of people who would say, no, Dave, I'm not actually a confident Christian uh, because I'm not actually a Christian. And it might be the case that you've just wandered up the hill from the harbour and you just wanted a place to sit down um, after coming up the hill and you just come in the tank and you you don't actually know the first thing about Christianity. And that's fine. I don't want to, I don't want to sort of uh, alarm you with the question of whether or not you should be some kind of confident Christian just by being here. Others of us here will be young Christians. So you'll be people that, you know, you, you've only just really discovered some of the truths of Christianity and the confidence that you can have in being a Christian. And you're still wrestling with a number of the different questions that you'll have. There'll be doubts in your mind. You're, you're content with where you're at, um, which is good. But you wouldn't yet say that you're a confident Christian. You might be a well-worn Christian and the pew that you sit on might be the place that you sit every week. Um, You might have been coming to church for years and you might be someone who'd say, yes, actually, Dave, I am a confident Christian. I love church. And we heard, you know, people say that just before. They love coming to church. They love reading the scriptures. The flame of faith burns really brightly for them. And other people, however... Uh, will be well-worn Christians 
um, but the flame doesn't burn so brightly. In fact, the embers burn really low. There might have been doubts and questions that have come into your life that have just really shaken you. You might have had a, a confidence in the past, but the, the, confident, the confidence has just started to wane. It might have been some kind of hard reality of suffering or hardship that you've experienced or one of your friends or close family members has experienced. You're just finding it a bit hard to explain and a bit hard to reconcile with trust in an almighty God or an all-caring God. Maybe you've tried to sort of explain what your faith means to someone and you've realised that it's just really empty. And you've realised that in this kind of incapacity to explain things to people, that you don't actually have a real confidence in your faith at all. This is the question I want you to wrestle with tonight. Am I a confident Christian? Honestly, it's something that I have I've struggled with over, over years. Struggling at times, thinking, you know, I, I, can, I can lead a, a connect group. And almost struggling with overconfidence in that, thinking that I'm something special because of that. And then almost responding to that with, by, with, with some kind of underconfidence that by, by my pride I've, I've then reduced myself to something that's less than Christian and it's created doubts on my mind and my life can sometimes you know, uh, vacillate between these two different extremes of confidence that's underconfidence and that's overconfidence. And the question that kind of sticks out is, can I ever be a confident Christian and just settle with it and be content? And the answer is yes. The answer that the Apostle Paul says today is yes, we can be confident Christians. And the reason for that is that our confidence doesn't begin and end and consist of us, but our confidence is in the living God. And that's what Paul shows us tonight. And Paul gives us every reason to be confident. If you look through the passage, you'll see, um, in fact, that this theme, uh, that there is a theme that Paul develops through the passage of boldness. And he wants to be reminding people again and again of the boldness we can have as Christians. Have a look at chapter uh, 3, verse 4 in your Bibles. Paul says, Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. This is the point that Paul's making, and he develops it um, in chapters 3, 4, and 5. See chapter 3, verse 12? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. 4.16, have a look at chapter 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident. And this is a theme. Paul is telling the Corinthians he wants them to be characterized with a confidence. A confidence in the fact, in their knowledge of what being a Christian is, but also a confidence in Paul's own ministry. And some of the background that Paul writes against, I mean, you don't tell a, a group of people to be confident when they're already confident, uh, do you? You tell a, a group of people to be confident when they're lacking confidence. And part of the reason for it um, is also pretty obvious in 2 Corinthians. Uh, we get this sense in which there's a group of people who are telling uh, the Corinthian Christians to lose their confidence in Paul. Um, you can see that Paul's actually willing to admit it. Have a look at chapter, back to chapter 1 uh, and verse 8. <clears throat> Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. 
We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Sense the weakness in Paul's life? He says, indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Here's the headstrong apostle that leads the Corinthians to Christ. Absolute weakness. He's willing to admit it. And if you read through the story um, of Paul's journeys, missionary journeys in the, the book of Acts, you'll see that in Philippi, they dragged him before the authorities and they stripped him naked and they beat him with rods and they threw him in prison. And you can just hear the people in Corinth going, yeah, Corinthians, there's your apostle. He's got a criminal record. And he goes from Philippi to Thessalonica. And a mob of people gather together and they drive him out of Thessalonica. And when Paul moves on to Berea, the mob follows him and they drive him out of Berea as well. And when he turns up to Athens, this great centre of learning, this place of sophistication and wisdom, he's ridiculed and he's ignored. And in fact, they just dismiss him. Like they're kind of just amused that he would think those kinds of things and dismiss him. And we just keep hearing these stories of, of Paul's weakness and it starts to build up in your mind, actually, maybe these guys are right. Maybe these people that are stirring up trouble in Corinth have actually got a point. I mean, Paul's made plans to visit us. We see in chapter 1 he's made a couple of plans to visit and he just doesn't turn up. And we can see when he gives a defense of it, he says, look, I'm, I'm writing to you to explain why I didn't come. He says in verse 4, when I wrote your previous letter, I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. He's just a big sook. And in his changing of plans and his tears and his crying and all this kind of thing, in verse 12, we come to our passage. And Paul says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went to Macedonia. And it gets to the point where it's embarrassing. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and if anything, it's his job to go to places like Troas and to tell people about Christ. He goes there, there's an opportunity, it falls into his lap. And what does he do? Oh, he doesn't feel quite right, so he leaves. I mean, this kind of lack of professionalism is the kind of thing we don't even accept in our workplaces. If a courier came along and said, oh, I just didn't feel right about delivering your goods, you'd sack him on the spot. Paul is shown to be pathetic, incompetent, impotent. And it's a wonder, what on earth is Paul doing willing to admit this kind of things, even adding to the, the scorn that people are pouring on him? But, in verse 14, Paul says, but... And often in Paul, you have these kind of scenes where he sort of creates a bit of a contrast and the but is really kind of special. And this is actually one that I really like. This but is good. Have a look at verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. And this is crucial stuff. This is the verse that you need to get tattooed on your forehead. Okay? This is really important for you to understand. Paul's weakness, Christian weakness, needs to be understood in the context of God's victory. And he uses here the image in verse 14 
of being led in triumphal procession. So what is this triumphal procession? Well, you know, yesterday was Anzac Day. And we had, we, you know, if you got up at 6 o'clock and went down the George Street or Anzac Parade or wherever it happens, uh, you can tell that I wasn't there at 6 o'clock in the morning or whatever time dawn is, you would have seen a procession of people. It's not really a, a victory procession, is it? It's more of a memorial. Uh, we kind of remember uh, the, the people that have you know, given their lives, paid the ultimate price. Um, it's kind of turning into a bit of a, 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 a triumphal victory in, in ways, as we sort of, the, the way that Australians have embraced it, we see it as a celebration of the victory of mateship and the victory of bronze Aussie battlers overcoming adversity and that kind of thing. But it's not really what Paul's got in mind here. A closer thing might be those sporting victor, uh, victorious triumph parade, ticker tape parades that you see. You know, when um, a sporting team wins a World Cup or gets lots of medical, uh, medals in, a, in the Olympics or al- like almost gets a victory in the World Cup, we sort of throw this triumphal procession. Uh, and we have our big, our, sort of these amazing athletes, huge figures of people sometimes, sometimes little people, uh, wandering down the street and thousands of people flocking around, throwing confetti and clapping and cheering. That's a bit closer to the kind of triumphal procession we've got here, but it's not quite the same. What we've got here is a Roman uh, triumphal procession. And when we have a Roman triumphal procession, we think of actually you know, an emperor or a centurion winning a great battle. You know, they've just been flogging all these enemies and killing them, and they come back. And what happens is people start lighting incense, and this smell triggers in people's minds the fact that there's something happening. In fact, that there's a parade happening. The smell comes out before them, and all of a sudden, a people gather around their, their conquering king, their emperor or their centurion, who brings and leads a procession. Thousands of people are clapping and cheering, but they're not cheering a bunch of great athletes or people that have all won. But the conquering king is actually leading his enemies in his train. That's the picture that we have here. A picture of a king who is victorious, but he leads his enemies. And the enemies are significant because the size of them and the sheer number of them show you that this king, is the victory is massive. And it shows you as well the proof that this victory has occurred. And what Paul is using here, Paul is sort of saying, God is leading us. What does it say? Verse 14, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of knowing him. So Paul is weak. He is the general at the end of the procession. Weak, not attractive, not eloquent, but defeated, beaten, chased away, flogged, imprisoned, and ignored. But in a profound truth, and we need to get this, as he travels around and proclaims, and proclaims these things in his weakness, he is proclaiming God's victory in Christ, and it is God who gets the victory. God who gets the glory, the weightiness that Paul was talking about before. Uh, studies, I read um, some studies uh, on the interweb uh, 10 years ago. Um, there was some studies done in America and Germany and England showing that one in five people 
one in five people still don't think that the, the earth actually goes around the sun. One in five people still actually think that the sun goes around the earth. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> I get confused. This is a, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing because you think, you know, hold on a second. Science has kind of proved this thing. Everyone believes it. But there are actually people who, who've just not really got it yet. They look at the sunrise and they say, oh, yeah, look at that. The sun's actually going around the earth. And they haven't got the magnitude or the impact of the fact that the universe is bigger than them. And in a similar way, there's a similar kind of uh, knowledge that Paul is communicating, that Paul embodies, that the world doesn't revolve around him. He doesn't seek his own victories. He doesn't seek his, um, uh, you know, his own successes. Actually, he becomes weak so that he can communicate that the centre of the universe is actually God, that it revolves around him, that he actually deserves all of the praise and glory of the people that live around this world. So that when he proclaims God's victory, he demonstrates it in Christ's weakness, which he embodies in himself. In fact, he can communicate Christ's victory in no better way than embodying the death of Christ in his own body. And as he does it, it's like a fragrance. As he lives it everywhere, as he proclaims the word of God, as he lives in his faithfulness, it wafts everywhere. It's like a smell that fills a room. And notice in that verse, verse 14, it always does it. And it goes everywhere. And the fact that it goes always and it goes everywhere is a truth that Paul clings to. It is because of this that he's confident, you see. In this, he is confident because he knows that he doesn't receive the glory. And he, he knows that. He's got scars to prove that he doesn't receive the glory. His discipleship isn't for his own glory. His discipleship and his service and his weakness is for God. And he's confident because he knows that God does receive the glory. The glory that God deserves. I want us to pause for a moment and consider what this means. This is a really key truth. But I want us to think and, and just let these things comfort us and challenge us. What does this mean for our suffering and what does it mean for our evangelism? Okay, Two things that we want to look at. Um, the reason that we talk about suffering is that it is one of the things that can really bring a blow to our confidence. As I mentioned before, there are things that might happen in our life that just confuse us. I remember reading about, um, like someone in Indonesia was talking about the tsunamis that came through a few years ago. And they just concluded this. If God is God, then he cannot be good. If God is good, he cannot be God. It just seems irreconcilable that so much damage can happen in the world and God still be in control. How can he be in control of these things and yet so loving? And it's questions like these that shake our confidence. How can I be confident in a God like this? How can I be confident that my life involves so much hardship? But as we reflect back on the message that Paul is embodying, as we reflect back on Jesus' death and the character of God's victory, a good man battered and beaten and crucified. As we look back on that, I think we can see that the suffering that is 
embodied here is actually at the very heart of what Christianity is. It's a moment of Christian suffering in the cross that is the seed on which the whole of Christianity has grown. The man who was beaten and hammered. He was just flogged on the cross. And it's not as though Jesus' disciples would have got a little bit down the track and go, hold on, Jesus. You didn't tell us it was going to be suffering involved. Can we really look at the cross and think life isn't going to be that difficult? No, suffering is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Full of unjust suffering. Life that has hardship and misunderstanding. Now, I don't want to belittle suffering by saying this. I don't want to say that suffering isn't hard. It is hard. It's very hard. (laughs) But it has to be hard for us to make us weak. If it was going to be anything less than hard, we wouldn't be weak. I also don't want to say that God doesn't care about our suffering. He does. If you remember back to last week, remember that Paul says that God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles. What I mean to say is that in verse 5, chapter 1, Paul is saying the same point, that he is confident that his sufferings are the overflow of Christ's sufferings for him. That the comfort from God also overflows into us because we know that through our faithfulness, these sufferings that we experience that the knowledge of God is made known everywhere. Our suffering can provide glory to God. How? Because our faithfulness in our suffering is the fragrance of the knowledge of God in this world. Let's consider for a moment what it means for us uh, to know this kind of truth in the context of our evangelism when we tell other people about Jesus and try and explain to people why we're a Christian and give an account for why we believe. Well, Paul goes on to flesh out what he means by this fragrance in verse 15. Have a look there. Um, We are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And so Paul pictures himself not only as God's conquered enemy at the back of the parade, but also as the fragrance that sort of wafts out before the... Uh, before the parade, around the parade and after it. This lingering smell that reminds people of this victory. Victory is literally in the air. I was trying to work out you know, what, kind, what kind of smell would be. What is the smell of victory? Lavender doesn't really do the job, does it? Wouldn't be lavender. Maybe like a barbecue or a spit roast or something. I don't know. Anyway. This victory smell, Paul says, brings different connotations for different people. And you know what it's like, the way that smell can trigger memories. Uh, there's this Mr. Sheen, the furniture polish. Every time, every time I smell it, it kills me. It just knocks me back and I think, oh, that's right. My dad playing the piano was about five years ago. These memories have this, these, these smells have this amazing capacity to take us back. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Here, the same smell. It's the same smell. It's the same message, the same fragrance, but it conjures up different memories for different people. There are those who look fondly on this victory and it smells sweet. They smell the scent of the crucified Jesus and it smells like life itself. It smells like the thing 
that has saved them. It shows God's victory over the evil in their lives and it secures the future for them. It is life. It brings life for people. And for some other people, the very same smell, the same message of the crucified Lord brings this stench of death. They're threatened by this victory and it smells bitter and offensive. I don't think we need to look very far to find people who find it offensive. Uh, It's confronting. I mean, Paul embodying, he's focusing his whole life on someone who has died. A crucified Lord? I mean, it's it's your definition of failure, surely. Telling people to give up their lives to follow this Lord? That's the stench of death. That just doesn't make sense. It's confusing and it's hurtful to to ask me to give up my life to follow this Lord. And when you consider it like that, when when you consider evangelism as the task of telling people this message of the victorious Jesus, then it can be very daunting, can't it? That you know that it has such a consequence. Some people will be saved and have life because of this and some people will, will will see it as just reminding them of their own death and it's even leading to their own death. And I know that some of you are in workplaces with some very smart people, some very powerful people, and the idea of telling them about Jesus, the idea of raising the fact that you're interested in Christianity, that you think it's got some merit, even when you water it down, you can feel very small. You know, I fear in my attempts to sort of tell people about Jesus that I'm not able to build a rapport with people, let alone tell them about Jesus. I'm not able to answer their questions. I'm not able to sort of articulate things as eloquently as other people. I'm not as smart. I'm not as powerful. I don't have this kind of success, this weight of success that I can throw around and sort of say, you should believe what I think because I'm, I've got this history of success. In fact, I look for other people to do that kind of thing. I look for other people who are smart to give me credibility. I look for really clever and well-produced books and DVDs and brochures and tracks or movie clips to sort of show people the truth. I look for famous people who aren't ashamed to be called Christians and I say, hey, look, that guy's sort of said he's a Christian too. Hey, you know, and try and uh, persuade people through that, that that the cross is actually worth listening to. It's a message worth accepting and even committing your life to. The thing is that Paul shares these weaknesses and that you're not alone in it. Um, each one of us has these kinds of confidence issues. But the difference is that Paul knows what it means to be the aroma of Christ. See verse 17? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit, On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. See, Paul speaks before God, only seeking to please him. He doesn't care what other people think so much. He speaks before God with sincerity, speaking the truth and meaning what he says. And he speaks as one sent from God, knowing that the message that he has, the message that he embodies and speaks is from God, that it's powerful. He doesn't peddle the word of God. This isn't a message that he sort of that you find in the, the bargain bin. He hasn't cheapened the message that it's easier to buy. The word actually 
conjures up this idea of diluting it. He doesn't give people weak cordial so that it's easier to swallow. He gives it to it in its full, intense flavour, or the intense smell, I guess. He confidently tells people about God's victory in a crucified king, confident that by doing so, that God is at all times and everywhere spreading the fragrance of knowledge in him. Friends, no one was saved by glossy brochures. I know no one was sa- who was saved by glossy brochures or by famous people sort of giving a talk or by witty anecdotes or by loud music. Those things are appealing, but I don't know anyone who was saved through them. But everyone who I know who was a Christian became one because they encountered the crucified Jesus who loves them and lays down their life for them. Paul is confident in his life and speech to declare this message. And you can see that Paul's work in evangelism stops right there. God does the rest. It's God who changes people's hearts by the work of the Spirit. Have, quickly have a look at verses 2 to 5 of chapter 3. Paul says to the Corinthians, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our confidence, competence comes from God. Our work in evangelism comes through our faithfulness in gospel proclamation, and it stops there. We're faithful in embodying this message, but then it is God's job to spread the fragrance. And friends, there is so much comfort to be drawn from this, that when I see someone turn away from me, in my, and I know that I've been faithful, I've just done the basic things, and I know that there's, there's not anything that I can do to change that person's heart. My responsibility ceases. And it's sad when people turn away. But it wasn't my fault. That's my confidence in Christ, in my evangelism. And I'm also confident that when I do my faithful thing, that God, it is God who is working in that person through the seed planted in them to change. There's so much comfort to be taken from this message. Let's not take... Let's not leave tonight without those comforts. But just to finish, I want to, I want to ask us to use our imaginations a little bit and just to consider what uh, ways this message confronts us and the challenges that it provides for us. Because I think it does. It provides some serious challenges. Don't I deserve some kind of payoff for being a Christian, you might think? I mean, I make sacrifices for God. Surely I need a bit of a payoff. Isn't it some kind of tit-for-tat relationship? Kind of like the Godfather. The Godfather will do something for us if we do something for him. You know, like we'll get him to do something for us and, you know, later down the track he might call on us to do something. Isn't that the way it works? No, Paul's discipleship and our discipleship is not for us. It's for God. The world revolves around him. And our search, the way that Christians have had a heart transplant, is they don't seek for things for themselves but they seek for God's glory. And Paul is saying that he is a winner because he's become a loser. Because of his weakness and his faithfulness in that, he's become a winner by becoming a loser.
And that's the other challenge I think it brings us. Because our, confident, our confidence is in God, we don't need to be winners anymore in this world. Not in the same way that we used to. And I want to ask us, what would happen if we really got this? That we didn't need to be winners anymore. That we didn't need to seek after our, ourselves and, se- and seek out for those little victories everywhere. You know, there's victories in conversations you have with people where you just need to get on top of them and put them in their place a little bit. You know those situations where you just need to compete in the workplace, to fight and climb and claw your way to the top. We don't need to do that anymore. We've been saved from that. And what we're challenged to do here is to become losers. We do the things that are basic to Christian faithfulness and we look like losers. That's what we're called to do. And you can see what Paul's done to do that. You read through chapters 1 and 2 of 2 Corinthians later. Have a read of it and you'll see. He speaks the truth with sincerity. He speaks the message of the gospel of Christ and he embodies it. He means it. And it looks weak. You know, he does change his mind a couple of times, but he does it in the sincerity and the love that he has for people. And his love abounds and it flows on to other people. So he speaks the truth with sincerity. He declares the, declares the word without peddling it or diluting it or cheapening it. It's so much easier to water down the message a little bit. Talk about the love and the, the fluffy God who wants to embrace you without spelling out the implications of the death and the, and the weak, the, the, poor, the, the, you know, the less desirable qualities of God. Paul doesn't declare the word without with, by peddling it or diluting the message down. We do the other things that are basic to Christian faithfulness. We make hard calls on the issues of holiness. And you can see Paul doing that in chapter 1. He tells people to change their lives. He tells other Christians to change their lives, and it hurts. The Corinthians have clearly been affected by this hurt. But Paul surrounds them in his love in this letter, and he gives them his forgiveness. And he asks them to forgive others. He wears his heart on his sleeve and he loves them. In being losers, uh, it's not very attractive in the life of the world, but it doesn't mean that we don't have confidence. It's not being a loser and feeling like a loser, if, if you know what I mean. See, our confidence means that we don't have the insecurities of chasing after money and all of the things that the TV and the internet tells us to love. All of those things that tell us to look after our bodies, to look after the security of our future, to look after our possessions. We're saved from these. We don't need to win in these ways anymore. We know where we're from and where we're going. We know that there's a stability that comes into our life. We know this stability because we know who we belong to and we know who we are and where our wisdom and our power comes from. We are confident because we know that our weaknesses and confusion aren't failures, they're prerequisites. Because in our weaknesses, God's power is made known and we're happy to be weak if it means that God is shown to be victorious. So this won't be for everyone. I understand that people are from different levels of their confidence levels and there's some people who, you know, you might not be ready to make this kind of commitment to being a loser. 
But I wonder if there are people who need to tonight. Like Joshua commands people. He, you know that passage we had read before? Joshua points out all of the successes and the ways that God has led the people all the way through. And he says, you need to decide this day who you will serve. And I wonder if you might be someone who needs to draw a line in the sand. No more equivocating. This is where I stand. That's it. I'm walking with Christ now. I'm embodying his, his way of life. I stand my ground with certainty in my weakness, proclaiming God's victory. I wonder if you need to make a commitment tonight. Uh, the other, this is the last one, the other thing that it causes us to be challenged by is the challenge for prayer. See, if it's God's, if it's God's work, who spread, if it's God who spreads the fragrance, if it's God who actually can change people's hearts so that they would see this smell for life instead of death, then it would cause us, if we truly understood that, it would cause us to pray like the world depends on it. It would put us down on our knees straight away to pray. Surely our prayers would be counted in the hours and not the minutes every week. In fact, I don't want to be legalistic about this, but on Tuesday this week we've got a prayer meeting. Is that right, Paul? We've got a prayer, uh, prayer meeting coming up this week, Tuesday night. And there's plenty of reasons why people won't be able to make it this week, and that's, that's okay. But sitting on the couch is not a good enough excuse not to be there. Let's commit ourselves to this kind of confidence. Confidence in the weakness. Let's turn to prayer now. Let's pray. Father, you lead us in triumphal procession in Christ, in our weaknesses. Please give us the comfort of this in our sufferings, in our evangelism, knowing that it is the character of your own love for us in Christ. Please give us this confidence. And Father, we pray that this kind of confidence would challenge us. And we pray that you'd help us to take these to heart, to seek no longer to be a winner in this world, but to take on this life of a loser in this world, to stake our confidence in the weakness of our crucified Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.